The man that we're going to look at tonight is Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus. It's probably not a name that you have even heard of, Onesiphorus. And yet, he is a very fascinating character, and Paul makes some very important statements about this individual, and I want us to focus our attention on Onesiphorus tonight. I subtitled this, Onesiphorus, a source of refreshment, a source of refreshment. And as we study this man's character tonight and how he contributed to Paul, how he fit into Paul's ministry, we're going to note how he became a source of refreshment through several different means. First of all, by demonstrating service. Secondly, by demonstrating resolve. Thirdly, by demonstrating courage. And fourth, by demonstrating faithfulness. Service, resolve, courage, and faithfulness, four qualities that that really define what made Onesiphorus such a significant individual in the life of the Apostle Paul. We really only know of this man through two passages in 2 Timothy, and I want to read those uh, to start our study this evening. The first text is found in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, where Paul writes these words. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Then there's another very brief reference to Onesiphorus in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19, as Paul draws this last letter of his to a close when he says to greet Prisca and Aquila. We've looked at Aquila already in a previous study, but he also extends this greeting to the household of Onesiphorus. Now, what can we... What can we learn about this man, Onesiphorus, from these brief texts? Well, there is probably more here than meets the eye at first glance. Let's look at some, just some of the background details about this man's life. First of all, the name Onesiphorus comes from the same root Greek word as Onesimus, but they're not the same individual. Onesimus, as we studied already, was likely from the area of Colossae, Phrygia, the Phrygian area, whereas Onesiphorus is, is, uh, is a, a person who is from Ephesus, as we'll see in just a moment. They're not the same individual, but their names come from the same Greek root, and that means to bring advantage or to be useful. As I said, he was part of the church at Ephesus, where he became known for his significant ministry efforts. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 18, in fact, if you don't open your Bibles to that text, we'll be talking about that section from verses 16 to 18 a lot in our time tonight, but we read that he had done significant ministry at Ephesus. So that's where he is was active in the Ephesian church. We also know from this text that he had a family. It says that he had a household, the household of Onesiphorus. 
And it was there in the Ephesian context. And Paul writes to Timothy and says, greet that household. So we can assume that the family of Onesiphorus, the household, was part of the Ephesian church. We don't know anything about Onesiphorus's conversion. He may have been converted as early as around the years A.D. 52 to A.D. 55 during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus during his third missionary journey. We know that Paul spent those three years, when we look at Acts 19, Paul was focused on the city of Ephesus. Perhaps as early as those years, Onesiphorus was converted. Uh, Or perhaps... Later on, when Paul comes back to Ephesus after his first Roman imprisonment, after the book of Acts is, is completed, sometime after that, around the year AD 64, AD 63, after Paul had been released from his first Roman imprisonment, we do know that he comes back to Ephesus because when Paul writes to Timothy the first time in 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, he refers to the fact that he left Timothy there in Ephesus. So Paul had returned to Ephesus again, and and maybe during Paul's time there, around AD 63, AD 64, maybe then Onesiphorus was converted. Or perhaps Onesiphorus wasn't even converted directly under Paul, and I tend to to think that way because Paul never refers to Onesiphorus as one of his own sons, as one of his own children in, in the faith. He probably was converted there in Ephesus due to the ministry of the faithful men that Paul had raised up in that city to do the work of the ministry. So when we, when we look at these two men, Onesiphorus and Paul, the only explicit reference to interaction comes in a very small point in time. It was when Paul was in prison during his second Roman imprisonment. That is when he writes these words to Timothy. The year would have been around AD 66. Paul was in prison. The nature of his imprisonment was different. I'll mention that in in just a few moments. I'll explain the difference between his first Roman imprisonment and his second one. During his second Roman imprisonment, the situation is exceedingly dire. In fact, Paul himself has no optimism that he will be released from prison. And it's during this time as Paul is incarcerated in Rome, awaiting his execution, that we read of how his path crosses with the path of Onesiphorus. One perhaps short period of time, and yet Paul has these important words to say about this important individual. Let's look at what defined this man as a man of refreshment. Number one, he refreshed by demonstrating service. What we're going to do is look at that text in First Timothy, or Second Timothy, If you look at that text in 2 Timothy, beginning in chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, we're actually going to begin at the end of that passage in verse 18 and work our way way, uh, to the previous verses. So we're going to begin in verse 18 and and slowly work our way earlier to, to verse 16. When we look at the end of chapter 1, verse 18 of 2 Timothy, we read these words. As Paul writes to Timothy, he says, You know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Now, when you look at that text a little more closely, we can learn this about Onesiphorus. The statement places Onesiphorus in the city of Ephesus before Onesiphorus had come to Rome to 
be with Paul. So prior to Onesiphorus' travel to Rome, he was there in Ephesus. And the statement suggests that he was there a long time. It's possible that he was even an elder in the church. But again, we just don't know. But what is emphasized here in this brief statement of, uh, of, of verse 18 is that Onesiphorus had a, a significant track record of ministry there in Ephesus. In fact, when, when Paul says to Timothy, you know very well what services he rendered, that phrase, what services he rendered, in the original Greek is in an emphatic position to emphasize extent. So Paul is emphasizing the immensity of the services, the significance, the extent of the ministry that Onesiphorus had had there in in Ephesus. Moreover, when he says, you know very well, as he says to Timothy, you know very well the extent of this man's ministry in Ephesus, he's referring to the personal and thorough knowledge that Timothy had. Timothy didn't need to stop for a minute and say, okay, who is this guy again? Who is Onesiphorus? No, Timothy knew this from personal experience. This man, Onesiphorus, had a testimony of very public ministry, very identifiable ministry, very impactful, influential ministry there in Ephesus. And therefore, we can see how such a man could come to have an important part in ministering to the Apostle Paul. As Paul describes this man and his refreshment, he traces it all the way back to this time in Ephesus when Onesiphorus was active in ministry. And here's one of the important things to draw from that. A lot of us would like to to have an epitaph of, 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 of heroism that would be attached to us, that we would be known for some kind of heroic deeds for the sake of the gospel. Well, understand this, that before Onesiphorus ever came to to Rome, he would have been an unknown, but nonetheless, he was busy in ministry. He was busy doing works for the service of the church. And it's because he was busy doing that as a pattern of his life that enabled him at a special point in time to rise to the occasion and to be a hero. And this is the reality of it. Deeds of heroism are not accidental. We, we read this of Onesiphorus and his ministry to Paul at that very crucial time in Paul's life where he's incarcerated. All have, have abandoned him. Onesiphorus comes onto the scene and does some heroic acts. And we're going to look more at that in, in just a few minutes. But understand that this, that that doesn't happen when a man one morning wakes up and goes, I'm going to do something heroic today. No, the ability to do great things for the Lord, the ability to attempt great things, is going to be based on a life of quiet, constant, consistent ministry. And that's where we need to begin. That's where Paul wants Timothy to remember, as far as Onesiphorus' life begins, in those acts of service, those acts of service that were done there in the Ephesian church. That's where we begin. But it, it then led to more. 
A man who's committed to, to doing ministry, to serving people, to these acts of service, rendering acts of service, whatever they may be, if he's going to be committed to that, more will come out of that. The Lord will use that for more. And we see that this in the second aspect here of Onesiphorus' life and how he demonstrated resolve. Now look at verse 17. We looked at verse 18. Take a, a, a verse earlier in this text. Verse 17. Paul says, 2 Timothy 1.17, But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. Now the location changes from there in Ephesus and his long track record of continuous ministry, the extent of long durative ministry. Now the scene changes to Rome. Paul is writing during a second Roman imprisonment. And the language here even suggests that Onesiphorus didn't travel to Rome explicitly for the purpose of meeting up with Paul. If we look at the language, it says when he was in Rome, he, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The idea is, is that this was kind of circumstantial. By divine providence, Onesiphorus had to go to Rome for some reason. It could have, have, it could have even been business. But it's when he was there, he eagerly searched for me and found me, Paul says. Now, when we look at that deeper, that, that statement in more detail, we read that Paul describes the nature of Onesiphorus' search as eager. And this is an important word. It re- pertains to being conscientious in discharging a duty or obligation. He took it upon himself. And he was conscientious about bringing this duty, this self-imposed duty or obligation. He put it upon himself to bring it to completion. He was diligent in it. He was earnest in it. And what we can tell from these words and what distinguishes this imprisonment from Paul's first Roman imprisonment is that it was not easy to find Paul. And this is different than his first Roman imprisonment. For example, in Acts chapter 28, Luke describes the first Roman imprisonment, which would have been the years 80, 60 to 62. And and Luke describes it with these words. And he, that is Paul, stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. This was not the second Roman imprisonment. The situation has changed. The first Roman imprisonment was due to, due to the Jews, the Jews there in Jerusalem around the year AD 58, AD 57, AD 58, around that time. They had brought accusations against Paul, charged him with blasphemy against the Jewish religion. The Romans step in essentially to quell the, the disturbance, but not because they had anything against Paul. Paul is kept in Caesarea for a couple of years. He then appeals to Caesar. The Roman governor says, you know what? If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we would have just let him go. But we're going to send him to Rome. He appealed to Caesar. He's a Roman citizen. He can go to Rome. So they sent him to Rome. He's there. But the Roman state did not have formal charges to be brought against Paul. They weren't at that time really interested in Paul. So the nature of Paul's first Roman imprisonment was, was relatively 
straightforward and, and simple. He was under house arrest. He, he could rent the quarters. People could come in and, and go, and he'd be chained to an imperial guard waiting his trial. But nonetheless, he had a, he had a considerable amount of freedom. But the second one is different. Here, Paul's whereabouts is not announced. And here we can tell from this, this wording that it took considerable effort on the part of Onesiphorus to track down Paul's whereabouts. It undoubtedly was kept under wraps because during the second Roman imprisonment, Paul was now an enemy of the state. He was now in prison, not because of the Jews, but because of the Romans. And from what we can tell from the history surrounding these details is that Paul had been arrested and charged with something akin to treason. He was advancing a religion that acknowledged Jesus as Lord and not Caesar as Lord. And now Caesar had had enough and said, you can't say that anymore. And so he was brought into this situation Probably, to some extent, he, the, the public wouldn't have been made aware of his whereabouts, and it was very difficult for Onesiphorus to track him down. This is not an easy situation. And what we read is that while many would have given up, Onesiphorus did not. And he found Paul most likely in what we know today as the Mamertine prison. And, and I've got a, an illustration of it here up on, uh, up on the, the, the screen what this prison was, was, was a former cistern. The lower level was originally built to collect groundwater that would seep up from the ground and they would draw water from it. There was no really stairs into it. There's a hole at the top and they would let their buckets down and draw water through it. Well, eventually due to the construction in that area, the spring dried up for the most part and they began to use the cistern as, uh, as a cell for high-interest prisoners. Prisoners would be lowered into this cistern through a hole, and they'd be raised up again through that hole. Food would be sent down through the hole, and so on and so forth. And that's probably where Paul was. That's the best evidence that we have based on history and how the Romans, we know the Romans used this as a prison, and we can kind of uh, correlate that with biblical terms, and that's most likely where Paul was, guarded with the imperial guard and in a very, very uncomfortable place. Back in January, I was there, and in January, it was cold. It was rainy outside, and you go down into this basement. It's actually now three stories below based on the the kind of buildup that has occurred there, and it was a very uncomfortable place, damp and cold. And that's where Paul was. This is how it looks today. This is Mamertine Prison. And uh, you have to go quite a ways down underneath to get to this, uh, to get to this cellar or this cistern, this prison. Here's another picture of it, how it looks. And, and it looks dark, and that's what it was. If you go down there today, they have lights on, but this is... Kind of the idea where light would come in from the top, and, and that's where Paul was, was staying. It was a semicircular cavity, and like I said, it was cold, bone-chilling cold in winter, which is probably why a little bit later on in this epistle, in chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy, bring the cloak that I left. Bring it to me. 
It's, it's cold. Now, if you can imagine for just a moment, Paul is in that prison, and his whereabouts are guarded, and he knows his life is coming to an end. And all of a sudden, Paul would hear the commotion as Roman imperial guards brought this unexpected visitor to the gate covering of this hole in the ceiling, and you hear a voice that says, Brother Paul, my name is Onesiphorus. I'm here for you. That was Onesiphorus's resolve. He searched out Paul, and he found him. Now, what is even more important to note about this is not only did he have the resolve to do this, it took an incredible amount of courage. Again, look one verse previous to verse 17. One verse previous, that's chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he was not ashamed of my chains. When Onesiphorus found Paul, he found him literally in chains, or actually he was in chain, referring to bondage. Paul was in bondage. And Paul says this, Onesiphorus was not ashamed. And that verb ashamed means to experience a painful feeling because of some particular event or activity. And what Paul is saying is that the event or or the activity of Paul's bondage was to Onesiphorus, not something that 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 he would shrink back from because it was a painful feeling for him, that he wanted to, to get away from it. To the contrary, Onesiphorus was drawn toward that. He was not ashamed of the chains that held Paul in that cell. In fact, it's interesting to look at how Paul uses this verb, not ashamed, in the immediate context. We go back to verse 8 of chapter 1. Notice this. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says to Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Then, just four verses later in verse 12, Paul says this about himself. He says, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. Same verb that's used there. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard that what I have entrusted to him until that day. And then the same verb is used here in verse 16 when Paul says, Onesiphorus was not ashamed. The command to Timothy, the statement of fact about Paul himself, and then he says, and here's an illustration. Onesiphorus. You see, public association with Paul at this time in Paul's life, not to mention any kind of close physical proximity to him, was exceedingly dangerous. Paul was accused of starting a new religion, of advocating insubordination to Caesar, and of being a traitor to the nation. Others who had previously associated with Paul had begun to flee. Notice the references that Paul makes to those 
who had fled out of fear for their own safety. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 15, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned against me. There were some that had been with Paul for a time. Perhaps they had been with Paul when he was arrested, maybe even somewhere in the province of Asia. And they had been with Paul for a while. But as Paul's trial continued and as it looked more and more severe and dire, they started hitting the hills. They were out of there. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, we read that Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me as well. And then he says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 16, some interesting words. He says, at my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. And that's a reference to the fact that by the time Paul writes 2 Timothy, he had already had one hearing before the imperial court, perhaps even before Nero. He'd already had one of those hearings. And you know what? All those friends of Paul that were with him for a while, when when the date came, they didn't show up. And Paul reflects on this and says, "I, I was there in chains, brought before Nero. But you know what? Where's my friends? They're gone. They've fled. And he was left alone at that that trial, that hearing before Caesar. And by that time already, Paul knew this is the end. It was a very discouraging time in many regards for Paul because of this issue. But then Onesiphorus arrived. The hearing had already been held. Many had already departed. But then Onesiphorus arrived. And he sought Paul out. And he was not afraid of the chains. Can you imagine, would you have the guts to go up to that prison and say to the imperial guard, standing guard there, I want to see the man in that hole. When you know very well that you're identifying with an enemy of the state. And you know very well that it could be your head next, after his And yet you show up and you say, I'm with him. Let me in. That was Onesiphorus. One man said this, There is no stigma in being the friend of Christians who enjoy as good or better a social standing than ourselves. But only true godliness will will befriend the despised and the desolate. Oh, we'll be friends of the Apostle Paul if... If he's doing well, if he's just on one of his journeys, we'll join him. But when his life is threatened and he's in a hole in the ground, how many of us would pursue him and put our life on the line? There's one more thing to note about this description of Onesiphorus, and it's his faithfulness in the midst of these very dire circumstances. Look to the beginning of verse 16. When Paul says, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. The verb refreshed here is found only here in the New Testament. It's a very, very rare verb. We don't even find it that much in in secular literature. It means to provide relief from obligation or trouble. It, It means to give someone breathing space. 
So one writer says this, the verb conveys the picture of providing a cool, refreshing breeze for a man about to faint. Paul was about to faint. And there was no one bringing him food, no one bringing him water. They'd all abandoned. Luke was still there, yes, his, his personal physician. Luke was bound to him as, as close as could be, but, but still everyone else had gone away. He still needed others. And Onesiphorus was that one to come and provide this refreshment. It was probably both physical refreshment in terms of food and water, and it was probably also companionship. Companionship. Coming to the hole in the ceiling and saying, I'm here, let's talk. And spending time there, interacting with Paul, as he recalled all the different ministries that the Lord had given to him, as he poured out his heart about his concerns for the church and, and gave his final wishes and desires for those uh, around him. Again, we read in this text in 2 Timothy four sixteen to 17 at my first defense, Paul says, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Paul even recognized why they fled and said, I don't hold it against them. But he said, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through the proclamation it might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And he said, I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Onesiphorus arrived, and that's the mechanism that the Lord provided for refreshment. Despite the danger, we read that Onesiphorus repeatedly refreshed Paul. Notice that adverb there. He often refreshed me. The word often is, again, a word that refers to a, a, a frequency and it's placed in a special place in that sentence to show that Paul is emphasizing to Timothy that this is something that, that Onesiphorus was doing often. He often refreshed me. It's not that he showed up once. It's not that he showed up maybe twice. But he was there time after time after time. This is the character of one who brings refreshment. He doesn't shrink away in light of the, the opposition. He doesn't, he doesn't fail. He doesn't fall away. He doesn't give up. He doesn't, doesn't drop the ball. He keeps at it. And this was Onesiphorus. And you know what? This is just a continuation of the kind of life that he began with back in Ephesus. Lots of ministry, constancy, consistency, resolve, courage, and faithfulness. Now, there's a side note that I want to mention just briefly here because if you have any Roman Catholic background, you might actually know of Onesiphorus. And the reason for this is, is that there's a debate over Paul's prayer for Onesiphorus. For example, we read in verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. And then a little later, we have a prayer or a wish for Onesiphorus himself, the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. But then when Paul closes out his letter and, and gives greetings to people in Ephesus, 
he greets the household of Onesiphorus, but he doesn't greet Onesiphorus. And it raises the question, where was Onesiphorus? Where is Onesiphorus now? He's not with Paul. He's not in Ephesus. Now, because of this, some, especially Roman Catholic scholars, but not only, there's others as well, but they conclude that Onesiphorus had probably died before Paul wrote 2 Timothy. And that's why he only greets the household of an Onesiphorus and not Onesiphorus himself. But why is it then that Paul prays for Onesiphorus? He prays that he would find mercy from the Lord on the day. And so some have argued that this is a prayer for the dead. In fact, it's this text and a text from the Apocrypha, 2 Maccabees 12, 34-35, that become key proof texts for those who would want to argue for the practice of praying for the dead. Let me read a well-known Catholic dictionary. It says this, 2 Timothy also includes greetings to the household of Onesiphorus and a prayer that the Lord might grant mercy to him or to his household because of his service to Paul. Onesiphorus himself does not seem to be included, suggesting that he was either not envisioned as present among the alleged recipients of 2 Timothy or, or, or he was already dead. The latter is most likely, since the author of 2 Timothy writes, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. If Onesiphorus had indeed died, then this prayer is the earliest one for the dead found in Christian literature. As such, it has been cited as clear scriptural support, especially among Roman Catholics, for prayer for the dead. Well, I want to respond to that, and I don't believe this is that support. And let me give you some, some responses to this. First of all, verses 16 and 18, where Paul gives this little wish, where he says, may the Lord grant... May the Lord grant the household of Onesiphorus and Onesiphorus himself. They're really not examples of intercessory prayer. They're very small parenthetical wishes. Now, they mean something. I'm, I'm not dismissing that. But it's, it's not an example of an intercessory prayer that, that contains all kinds of details. It's a, uh, it's a wish for mercy. Secondly, and this is more important, there is no evidence in 2 Timothy to suggest that Onesiphorus had died. And so it, it's... It's an argument from silence, and you must never build a doctrine on an argument from silence. Paul never refers to the death of Onesiphorus. And so even if we take that statement as a a genuine prayer for him, to say that this is a prayer for the dead is to assume far more than what is ever communicated in the text. In fact, a better way to understand this is that Onesiphorus had been with Paul but wasn't with Paul at the time of the writing because he was either on his way back to Ephesus and would get there after 2 Timothy would arrive, or he was on another duty for Paul, being discharged to do something for Paul, perhaps somewhere else in Italy, somewhere in a different province, but he just simply wasn't around in Ephesus. And so when Paul writes to Timothy this letter and says, may the Lord grant the household of Onesiphorus mercy, and may you greet that household. That's not a reference to the fact that Onesiphorus was dead. He just wasn't there in Ephesus. It's as simple as that. One more thing about this prayer that is 
fascinating to consider. He says, may the Lord grant to him, to Onesiphorus, to find mercy from the Lord on that day. There have been suggestions that this wording actually recalls the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 to 36, we, we read of this judgment between the sheep and the goats, and we read how some are, are separated out for bliss and joy and eternal reward, and others are ushered into eternal damnation. And we read these words, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, these words aren't just about visiting prisoners in general. It's about visiting those who suffered because of the name of Jesus Christ. Paul was one of those who suffered because of the name of Jesus Christ. And Onesiphorus was one of those who came and visited. He refreshed Paul. And so Paul prays on the basis of this kind of wording that at the time when the Lord would grant reward in a general way, when the Lord would grant reward to Onesiphorus, when Onesiphorus would stand before him, Paul prays, may Onesiphorus receive his due reward. May the Lord have mercy on him. Just some final words here as we wrap up our study. One writer said this about Onesiphorus. Paul's brief words concerning Onesiphorus present a pleasant or a pleasing portrait of a great-hearted man who proved himself a true friend in need. Now, with that said, let me quote another writer who really brings it to the point of, of consideration and contemplation. What are we to do in light of this example of Onesiphorus? Let me read from Rolston when he says this, There are some people who tire us, and there are others who lift us and give us new strength for our tasks. What is it that makes a man a bore? Why do some people tire us and others refresh us? Here's the question that's before us. What kind of man are you? Are you a man who brings refreshment? Refreshment to those in need. Are you the kind of a man that others want to have around them because your words are like balm to their hurting souls? Are you an onesiphorous kind of man that will enter a conversation or will enter a group of people and you bring a fresh breeze of relief? Is that who you are? Think of that. Or are you one of those who, when you enter the conversation, tensions go up? When you enter the conversation, heart rates begin to increase. Are you one of those kinds of men that's known as, as a pain in the rear end? Because when you come into the situation, criticism. When you come into the conversation, negativity, pessimism. The glass is always half empty. 
Are you that kind of a man? Because I can tell you, if you were that kind of man, Paul would be happy that you would hit the hills. That's not the kind of man he needed. He needed an Onesiphorus kind of man. We need men today, we need you in this church and in all your relationships and your context to be men who have it as their ambition in life to be an Onesiphorus, to bring spiritual refreshment, to bring service, not slothfulness. You've got to be one of those who's always ready to serve, not one that we have to hook up the jumper cables to and try and get a pulse out of you. Will you respond? No, you need to be ready to do those extensive acts of service, to have resolve and not reluctance, that you don't need to twist your arm, you're resolved, and if you've set your mind to something, you're going to bring it to completion. We need those who have courage, not cowardice. We're not afraid of this culture, not afraid of the, the laws that might be passed in the future, who aren't losing sleep about what might happen to them if they witness to their boss. They have courage. They have courage. They'll associate with those who do right, the righteous, no cowardice among them. And we need men who are faithful, not fickle. Men who are going to put their nose to the grindstone, look ahead, and just keep doing those works of refreshment, regardless of the cost. Are you an Onesiphorus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful example that we have from this obscure man who's mentioned in only a a few brief words. But out of these few brief words from your, your living oracle, your word, we find refreshment to our souls because we recognize that all of us would long to have an Onesiphorus with us in a time of need. We pray, Lord, that you would therefore make us men like Onesiphorus who can be there for others in their time of need. I pray that you'd use these men in this church, in their families, in their workplaces, as those known who when they enter the room, they bring a breeze of fresh air. They bring encouragement and optimism. They bring joy. They bring happiness They bring fellowship. They bring koinonia. Make these men, make all of us this kind of man. I ask it for the glory of your son's name, the one who ultimately demonstrated refreshment as he came to us in our time of need and gave of himself life. We pray it in his name. Amen.